Hello and welcome to this Gig Economy Project podcast. My name is Ben Ray, I'm the coordinator of the Gig Economy Project. And today I'm joined by Paris Marks, who is the host of the popular Tech Won't Save Us podcast and author of a new book, Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation, which was published by Verso in July. The Uberfiles revelations have let a thousand questions bloom about the Silicon Valley company that's broken all the rules, accumulated massive power across the globe, but has never achieved a profit and has so far failed in many of its stated ambitions to transform the, the transport sector for good. In this podcast, Paris and I are going to discuss all this and more. Paris, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Ah, thanks so much for having me on the show, Ben. Big fan of uh, the work. Thank you. Uh, okay, let's start with Uber files. So, I mean, you've been covering uh, Uber for a long time now, so I'm sure a lot of stuff in Uber files were things that you knew about before and that sort of thing. But what was your main sort of takeaways from from the Uber files? Yeah, as you said, there's a lot in there that we already knew about. You know, the focus on gray ball and the kill switch. You know, very much things that we knew over, over here in Canada. Um, I believe it was the Toronto Star wrote their article on the Uber files and started it off with how the kill switch was used in Montreal when tax authorities went and raided the Uber office there um, to try to get files to show that Uber wasn't properly paying its taxes. And then, you know, the the headquarters used the kill switch to shut down all the computers and encrypt everything. And, you know, that basically the same story was written a few years ago because we already knew that all of that had happened, mm-hmm. right? Um, certainly I think maybe we saw that it was used in some new cities that we didn't know about before, possibly, um, even that I'm not, I'm not super certain about, you know, we knew about gray ball. I think that the real kind of novel contribution of the Uber files was to see how easy it was for Uber to get in the room with prominent politicians. We already knew that they had relationships with a lot of politicians, right? This is, this is not new information. We knew that they had paid academics to publish really favorable reports to, to make Uber look good. All of these things are things that we knew. But I think that because um, it was leaked by this guy, Mark McGann, I believe his name was, who was you know a really top Uber person in Europe and the Middle East and, and their rollout there, um, it was able to illustrate how easy it was for Uber to get in the room with these people and how politicians, in many cases, really wanted to by the narrative that Uber was selling, right? Really wanted to believe kind of the techno vision that it was putting forward that, you know, a tech company like Uber was what was going to solve these problems, that it was the future of work and transportation and what have you. Um, and we, we're, really a, we're really willing to, you know, ignore the many potential downsides of this model, even as that information was coming out um, in order to, you know, as we saw in France, in order to ensure that Uber could operate there as, as Macron was working to ensure that, um, you know, Uber wouldn't be banned. Uh, we saw that people who previously worked for the Obama administration, you know, started working for Uber and used their contacts from working within um, the U.S. government, even with ambassadors in France and the Netherlands to, um, you know, ensure that Uber wouldn't be restricted in those countries. Uh, you know, we saw UK politicians like Chancellor George Osborne meeting with Uber in Canada. Um, the the mayor of Toronto was, you know, in these papers was known to have met with Uber and Toronto was one of the jurisdictions that first 
regulated Uber, but those regulations were like exactly the sort of things that Uber wanted in the regulations, right? Basically copied Uber's model and, and implemented that. Um, and so there are many examples of these things happening. And so I think that it's important that we understand the degree to which Uber was able to convince these politicians that um, it was the way forward, that it was the future, and the degree to which they wanted to believe that or were open to believing that without thinking critically about the consequences. Um, and so I'd say that's the most novel contribution of the of the papers, even though there's like it's filled with stuff that we already knew and we knew that these relationships were there, but it fills in those details. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in getting your your thoughts on the reaction to the Uber files from someone on the other side of the of the pond, as you call it, um, because a lot of the revelations, because it came from the Uber whistleblower was Mark McGann, who was Uber chief lobbyist in Europe. Uh, as you said, a lot of the revelations are focused on Europe. What is the reaction to it being in the United States, where you know is Uber is actually based? My my sense, I haven't been following it very closely, but my sense is it's kind of gone under the radar um, to a certain extent in the US. But what can you tell us about that? Yeah, I would pretty much agree with you. Like here in Canada, uh, you know, the Toronto Star and CBC published articles on it. And then that was about it. The the mayor of Toronto made a statement because he was in the the papers and effectively said that, um, you know, he was in there, but he, you know, didn't do anything bad. He was the first one to regulate or one of the early, you know, cities to regulate Uber. And then they updated the regulations over time as conditions developed. Right. And, you know, he was able to get off with that kind of boilerplate statement in the United States. I would say similarly. Um, you know, the Washington Post has published a number of stories on the Uber files and the revelations within it, you know, similar stuff than than has been published by The Guardian. Um, but, you know, the the in, like they don't really seem to have hit. Right. There doesn't really seem to have been a, a significant impact in forcing people to, um, you know, kind of challenge Uber or see Uber in a different light, because, as I was saying, a lot of these things are things that we already knew about Uber. But I think that Uber has also had an effective PR line in saying, you know, these are things from the Kalanick era. Mm. Um, we've already moved on from this. We have a new CEO. Things are great and we fix all our problems now, you know, the, the lies that they put out there. Um, and so, you know, I think that they've been effective in, um, I guess, getting around the story. But it really felt like they hit. There was a few days where people was, were interested and then, you know, kind of the interest died down and you know i don't know if it's been similar in europe i know that there were discussions about um investigating macron as a result of these uh, revelations and and there was the the official in the european commission who Mm -hmm. was in the papers as well um but i I haven't paid attention to know if if things have moved forward on those fronts to actually dig deeper into them i think there is things happening there's inquiries happening quite a lot of different european countries into how Uber entered into the, the sort of national market. Um, there's an inquiry into the person you mentioned, uh, Neely Cruz, uh, the Euro- who was the European Commission Vice President, uh, and clearly who, um, both when she was in the European Commission and after she had left, was essentially working on behalf of, of, of Uber. So there's inquiries that are, that are taking place. There's also a, a big taxi driver protest in Italy which was actually part of um, bringing down the, the Italian government. Now there's going to be an election. 
Um, so there's been things happening, but I think it has dissipated quite quickly. And I think it's you're right in identifying the reason that they would have been able to say this is something from the past and is not not about Uber now. Just give us a comment on on that. You know, what, what, why why is that incorrect that, that this is all in Uber's past? Yeah, it, it's very much um, kind of playing on this narrative that Uber has been able to weave for itself that. You know, during the Travis Kalanick era, you know, when he when he was in command of the company, he was ousted around 2016, 2017. There was this culture where, you know, anything goes. They were happy to break the laws. Um, You know, there was rampant kind of sexism and discrimination within the company itself. Um, And the way that Uber has kind of told its own story is that, you know, once these things reached ahead, they finally turfed Travis Kalanick. They brought in. Uh, Dara Khosr Shahi to replace him from Expedia, I believe, was where he was before. And the the kind of explanation was that when Khosr Shahi came in, he changed the company, right? He changed the culture of the company. Um, he started to work with drivers in order to, you know, ensure that they had uh, better conditions. They started to work more collaboratively with cities. Like this is the story that they that they tell, right? And what we actually see is that is kind of bullshit. Um, I'm sure that there have been changes internally at the company. Um, I, I certainly hope that women aren't treated the way that they were uh, while, while Travis Kalanick was in charge and that those things have changed. Um, and I feel like I haven't heard as much about those kind of aspects of the company since Koster Shahi took over. So that's certainly a positive development. But in taking over and in, in weaving that narrative, Koster Shahi has also kind of been able to, and the company has been able to try to whitewash the camp, the ongoing campaign that it's had against workers, right? And in particular, we see that most prominently in California with the Proposition 22 campaign, um, which was all about overturning the law that the government had passed to make these Uber drivers employees instead of independent contractors and and the larger gig economy, not just Uber drivers. Um, And by effectively lying to the public, by spending hundreds of millions of dollars in order to mislead the public, they were able to overturn that with this ballot measure that wrote a third classification, so to speak, of of worker in there, people who worked independent contractor but weren't employee. And so you were effectively a contractor with a few more benefits that most of the uh, workers said they couldn't actually access in the end anyway. Um, And many said that they were even worse off after this law had passed. And now what we see is after doing that in California, uh, Koster Shahi and Uber have launched a campaign to roll those sorts of regulations out in many other jurisdictions. So states across the United States, I believe there's been progress in Washington state recently. Um, they've encountered some trouble in Massachusetts where they've been trying to roll it out. Um, they've also been pushing it in Canada and they've made some progress in Ontario in having this move forward. Um, certainly in the UK, we had the Supreme Court decision. I believe that was last year. Um, and you know what we see there is that the Supreme Court said that these were workers, um, not independent contractors, you know, Uber drivers. Um, But the Supreme Court said that they should be paid for the entire time that they're logged from log on to log off. And Uber just ignored that um, and and didn't follow it because they are trying to kind of rewrite that worker status to be exactly what they wanted to be and to serve their business model. And so certainly there have been pushes in other countries for this. There are other countries that are moving closer to more of an employment model in trying to force Uber to recognize the workers as employees. But, you know, this kind of clean, softer image that Uber is able to, is trying to kind of push for itself is um, really trying to hide 
the concerted war on workers that continues under Dara Khosrowshahi's leadership. And that really is essential, um, or, or the company sees that as essential, if it's ever going to be able to turn a profit or have some kind of sustainable business. Um, they do not want to have to pay workers like a, a fair wage and treat them as they should be treated. Mm. Um, Let's talk about the book because there's a lot of things about Uber which come into the book uh, as well. Uber is a big part of the story. So it's called Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation. Before we get into the specific stuff about Uber, let's talk more about the general idea of the book. So what what is Silicon Valley's big idea to change transport and, and, and what's wrong with that idea? Yeah, it, it's it's an important question, right? Because really what Silicon Valley has been pushing for more than the past decade now, past decade and a half about when it comes to transportation and their contribution to transportation is they recognize that there are these problems, particularly in North America with this transportation system that is dominated by the automobile. Um, and they say, okay, you know, we can see that there's a contribution to climate change. We can see that people are stuck in traffic. We can see that people are dying on the roads and this needs to be rectified. And so our solution is to think up new technologies and add new technologies to the automobile that are supposed to solve these problems, right? So electrification will solve the climate impact. Um, Uber and, and ride hailing will mean that you won't have to own a vehicle anymore. It will solve traffic problems. It will make uh, transportation more accessible to people who can't access it. Um, and self-driving cars are kind of an extension of that, promising many of the same things. Um, and what we actually see and, and what we've observed after, you know, many of these things have been around for quite a while, particularly Uber, um, is that these promises tend not to be followed through on, right? They tend not to be realized. Uh, so Uber, you know, even though it made all these promises, made traffic worse in, in cities, uh, did very little to reduce car ownership and car use. Meanwhile, it pulled people from public transit and it increased the climate contribution of the trips that people were taking. So by taking Uber, you know, it was emitting more than if you had just gotten where you were going the way you were going to go before. Um, and, you know, self-driving cars have really not arrived. Sure, there are a few on some cities uh, around the world that's still like in more of a test phase, but they didn't take over the transportation system as we were promised. And electric vehicles are certainly part of the solution to the climate problem created by the transportation system or, or the transportation system's contribution to climate change, but it's not the full solution, right? And if we're actually looking at a sustainable transport system, we should be more focused on getting people out of cars as quickly as possible, um, rather than just converting every fossil fuel car to an electric vehicle, even though electric vehicles are still better than fossil fuel cars. And so you know, the real contribution in large part of the tech industry is to say, there are all these problems with automobility with the automobile, but we can solve that by integrating these new technologies into the car itself so that we can still be reliant on our cars and don't need to change this fundamental system, right? We don't need to think about politics because we just have technology. But really, if we are going to solve these problems, as the many failures of these tech companies have shown us, what we need is to address the politics of transportation and to really talk about what a better transportation system that you know addresses these problems that are going to be and that is going to require political action to realize. Mm. And the Uber's story within this is, is quite fascinating really because 
The company um, had, is, has had an unprecedented investment. I think its pre-IPO investment was 2,500 times the pre-IPO investment in, in Amazon. Um, so really incredible, unprecedented investment. Yet the company doesn't really have a, a big idea for how to change the fundamentals of, of driving a car. Right, because a lot of what, as you explain in the book, a lot of what goes into the economics of of driving a cab is the the vehicle, the driver, and the fuel. And Uber doesn't change any of that. It, it adds an a, a, an app, so make 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 it easier for you to to access a cab. It doesn't change any of the fundamental economics of of um, you know the, the the cab business. And in the book, you compare Uber to Amazon. And you kind of explain why Amazon has managed to succeed in its kind of growth before profits model, where rather than getting profits quickly, you grow and grow and grow and grow and you put all your money back in, reinvest it back into the company. Uber tried to do the same thing, but it hasn't succeeded. Can you just explain to us how, how that's happened, how those two companies have taken those different trajectories? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so Amazon is is kind of the model that a lot of these other companies that try to lose their way into building a monopoly um, try to emulate, right? And and it worked for Amazon because Amazon is at its core this fulfillment business, right? This e-commerce business, and so it could take advantage of economies of scale as it grew larger, so the cost of delivering the service could be reduced over time, right? And that was really key to Amazon's ability to pull this off and to have this model work for it and to become like this massive juggernaut that it is today that is using the profits from e-commerce and from um, cloud computing from AWS in order to expand into all these other industries because it doesn't need to make money because it, it has able to you know, build this monopoly effectively or oligopoly, whatever you want to call it, but this significant degree of control that allows it to extract huge amounts of profit and revenue um, from these industries and from these services that, that it commands. And so naturally companies like uber wanted to emulate that right wanted to become wanted to control their segments their market segments and wanted to lose their way to growth you know lose a ton of money so that they could grow incredibly quickly and take over uh, in a similar way to amazon but as you were saying it doesn't really work for a company like uber because of the service that they provide and the service that they actually provided the transportation service like a like a taxi service effectively um they did so in a less efficient way than an existing taxi service, right? An, an existing taxi service has a fleet of vehicles that it manages um, with you know, insurance that tends to cover the fleet. With Uber, it forced every single individual driver to own their own vehicle, to buy their own insurance, to get their own gas and maintenance and what have you. So there were no kind of efficiencies that were developed there. And as it grew larger, that didn't really change, right? Um, sure, it controlled the app and it was able to deploy the app in a ton of different places, but the fundamentals of the service, as you were saying, the, the main cost areas of the service were less efficient than an actual taxi service. And then on top of that, with Uber, you have these really expensive headquarters all over the world, these really highly paid um, software engineers and development teams that go into that, these incredibly highly compensated CEOs and executive teams that you know, a regular taxi company wouldn't have, nearly, not nearly to the same degree. And so you can see how the Uber model is less efficient and thus was not able to emulate Amazon because it was operating in a whole different 
you know, sector really um, that wasn't able to take advantage of the economies of scale in the same way because of how it was designed and just because of how things work in that sector. And so that's why Uber was not able to emulate Amazon and has instead continued to lose billions and billions of dollars over the years as it tried to achieve this. And now finally, it seems that is going to have to change and it's trying to reckon with what that is going to look like, you know, as the access to cheap money starts to dry up um, and interest rates go up and things like that. We'll get into that last bit that you mentioned there, but just before that, it's interesting what to think. Why did it happen in the first place? Why did Uber, how did Uber pull off this kind of confidence check where they got all this uh, venture capital investment and have people benefited? Even though Uber has burned through thirty-one billion, even though Uber's uh, share value is less now than when it you know the original IPO. Have the original investors benefited financially from putting the money into Uber? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the early investors got in at a really low price, right? And so, even though the company lost all this money when it went public, and you know, even though the price didn't shoot up as much as they were expecting it to, they were still able to cash out and you know make profits on their investment because of the stage at which they invested in the company, right? And effectively, they were um, then offloading the risk and, and you know, what was coming in the future uh, for Uber onto more retail investors and, and, you know, these people who wouldn't have been investing early in the company. And so the early investors have absolutely made their money back. They have certainly benefited. Um, and like, you know, as you're saying, has Uber really benefited society? I would say no. Um, it certainly made it more convenient for some people to access a taxi. Um, you know, what the studies I've looked at shown is that the people who mainly benefited were young, um, college educated people in urban areas earning above average incomes, right? Um, you know, basically your average tech worker, the same sort of people who are promoting this kind of a service. It's not, you know, the the underserved people or the marginalized people as some of the marketing would have you believe. Um, it's people who are already well off, who already have, you know, perfectly um, good access to transportation services, who were just having it further uh, improved for them as a result of this service. And they were the ones who were benefiting. And I think now as we see Uber prices start to rise and stuff, that we're just going to see more and more of that. Like it's those kind of people who are who will continue benefiting from the service and, and less and less like the broader public or anyone else who would be using it. But I would note one other thing there as well. When we're thinking about who benefited from Uber, um, you know, one of the things that that showed up in my research on on Uber and and what I was reading for the book, and this is something that Hubert Horan, who's you know a, a frequent critic of Uber, has has noted, is that um, Uber kind of adopted a playbook that was developed in the 1990s by libertarian organizations, right wing groups, the Koch brothers to deregulate the taxi industry in the United States. Um, and it, as it was growing, picked up this similar playbook um, in order to benefit itself, in order to destroy the taxi regulations uh, in the United States, but you know, around the world as well, in order to roll out and try to build this monopoly of, on transportation in many cities around the world. And so as that has progressed, and as, you know, as we were talking about, as we've seen this kind of war on workers and the rights of workers and labor regulations in so many countries, 
yes, the early investors have benefited from this, but I would say even if Uber doesn't you know, turn a profit at the end of the day, there are a lot of other capitalists who have also benefited from what Uber has done mm. in chipping away at taxi regulations, but also at uh, labor regulations in many countries and jurisdictions. So Uber's kind of historic goal might not be to to change the taxi industry, anything like that. It might be to, to kind of weaken workers' rights and, and change the nature of the kind of labor relationship. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I would say that it's not even, it's not just an Uber thing, right? I would say if you look at what many of these tech companies have done, what many of their innovations like kind of entail, it really is finding ways to, you know, reduce the role of worker to increase kind of exploitative management of workers to ensure that they're paid less. You know, if we look at the Amazon warehouses and the ways that they've used, um, you know, algorithms and technology in order to further kind of rationalize work in order to remove the power of workers in many senses in those warehouses, um, as well as in its delivery operation. I think you can certainly see ways that um, technology is oppressive in those ways and is used in really oppressive ways by these companies. But even broader than that, as we see these technologies being rolled out increasingly in society that are promoted to us as um, AI, as artificial intelligence, as though you know we're replacing a human with a robot and they're doing everything that, or, or a computer system or what have you, and they're doing everything that the worker used to do, what we actually see is that behind the scenes, often there are really low paid workers, even more poorly paid workers who are making those systems work in ways that are completely invisible to the public, people that are often referred to as, as micro workers um, working for platforms like Amazon's Mechanical Turk who are doing these really small micro tasks in order to um, make these systems operate. But it's really hard to recognize that it's actually a worker that's doing those things because of how technology abstracts that relationship and I would, I would note one final thing, even beyond that, one thing that we're seeing developing right now in Canada, there's a fast food chain called Freshy. Um, and in the past year or so, they've started to replace their cashiers with video screens. Um, and so cashiers like in Ontario would be paid about $15 an hour. And they're replacing it with video screens with workers in, uh, I believe it's Nicaragua, and they're, they're expanding to other countries as well where they'd be paid $3.75 an hour. And so instead of talking to a cashier to place your order when you go into a fast food restaurant, you'd instead talk to this low paid cashier in another country who's being kind of video called into the store. Um, and you know they're certainly looking to expand those sorts of things. Um, and, and shockingly, like, I don't know, it's shocking to me that the government really isn't stepping in to try to say like, no, like this is over the line, this is unacceptable. Um, but they're just kind of allowing it to happen. Mm -hmm. One of the things you obviously um, you write about in the book is what what actually are the solutions to to the problems? I mean, massive, massive problems of the, the way transport works right now: congestion, pollution, uh, carbon emissions. Um, you know, there's enormous problems with the nature of the transport system. Part, some of them have been created by Uber and Co, but you know they were there anyway. So what 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 is the alternative to the to kind of Silicon Valley's solution for transport? Yeah, it, it's an important question, right? Because these are problems that we need to address, 
And I think that we need to be serious about what the solutions are going to be. And especially after the past decade or so of Silicon Valley selling us these ideas for what the solutions could be, and then finding they were unable to follow through. And in many cases, their solutions actually made the problems worse, not better, like Uber making traffic worse, you know, making the conditions of workers worse, uh, you know, increasing the climate contribution of these trips. Um, that what we need is to think seriously about what's necessary here. And, and the key is that it's not just rolling out new technologies or attaching new technologies to cars that is going to solve the problems. Ultimately, these are political problems that require political solutions in terms of how we design our transportation system and how we distribute the benefits of that transportation system. Um, and you know, certainly I would argue that a lot of mistakes were made in placing such a huge emphasis on automobiles in the past um, at the expense of transit and other kind of collective services, right? And so if we're thinking what is going to solve these things, if what's going to solve you know, the traffic, what's going to solve the, the personal cost of owning um, a, a car, which is very expensive for a lot of people, the lack of access to transportation that a lot of people experience, it's really, and, and you know, so many other problems with the system of transportation we have today, it's really by making a much greater investment in public transportation systems, whether that's expanding subways, making buses more reliable, um, more frequent, available in more areas. That is really key, making them affordable for people as well, because even in some places where we can see that there's you know, pretty good transit service, maybe in a city like London, you know, the fare for using the tube can be pretty expensive for people, even prohibit prohibitively so, right? Um, so that's a key piece, but then also making the investments in things like cycling infrastructure so that people can, you know, reliably use a bike and not feel that they're going to be run down by a car or that their bike is going to be stolen if they go into a store or something like that, right? To make it realizable for people, to make it reliable for people. And we can see even in Paris, like through the pandemic, how there's been a significant increase in cycling because the government took really concerted measures to close streets, um, to provide more space for bikes to encourage people to use them. And, and they did so, right? Um, and so when we're thinking about transportation, I'd say those things are key, but also building communities in a way that allow people to, you know, take those types of transportation because things aren't so spread out, right? The things that you need are closer to where you're living. And that also requires thinking beyond transportation. So yes, we need to address the transportation system, but we also need to recognize that, you know, that's just one system in a whole group of systems that we depend on in our in our everyday lives. And if we improve transportation in a neighborhood, but then that causes housing prices to go up and pushes the people out who would most mm -hmm. benefit from those changes, then that's not really moving us in the right direction either, right? And so we need to pay attention to how a privatized housing system doesn't really fit in with this kind of broader vision. And that's gonna require greater investment in things like public housing and cooperative housing to ensure that people can actually afford to live in these communities um, and, and you know, benefit from these changes instead of just being forced out to areas where that wouldn't, you know, that might not have as many benefits as as the ones where they lived before, because that's all that they can afford to live in now. What about electric cars? Because Elon Musk would have it that, you know, electric cars is really the answer to, to uh, climate change issues and transport issues. What role does electric cars have to play in a kind of a kind of just transition uh, to, to a carbon neutral economy? Yeah, I think that electric cars certainly have a part to play, right? And it's not to say that we're not going to have any electric cars at all. I think electrification is going to be really important for this kind of transition. But what I'm worried about right now 
is the overemphasis on electric cars by people like Elon Musk, but also many Western governments, right, who are, I would argue, um, especially here in North America, I, I'm not as up on what European governments are proposing, but are really pushing the electric car as kind of the silver bullet to transportation's contribution to climate change. Um, and, and even using language like zero emissions because there's no tailpipe on the vehicle. And I think that's really misleading, right? It doesn't address how there are all these other problems that are created by having a transportation system that's so reliant on cars and, and mass automobility, um, you know, from the sprawling neighborhoods to, uh, you know, the air pollution, which is still going to happen with electric cars, to the people who die on the roads and, and on and on. Um, but I also think that the environmental benefit of the electric car is often overstated. There's no question at all that in most cases, the electric car is going to be better than the internal combustion engine vehicle. It's going to have a lower life cycle emissions. Absolutely. But I think that it's not as good as we often talk about. Like it's still a car. It still has an environmental impact. And in particular, we see that in um, the amount of mining that is going to be necessary mm -hmm. to make all of these cars around the world. And certainly there are pushes to increase the amount of mining in the global north in places like the United States, like Canada, um, like Portugal in the EU, um, where there are pushes to increase mining to supply electric vehicle battery production. But most of that mining is still going to be in the global south, right, in places that we have taken advantage of for centuries um, in order to extract mineral resources from. And those mines have consequences for local communities, the environmental consequences, consequences for workers, you know, and consequences for the communities themselves who have to deal with the consequences of these things. And as much as, you know, people might promise that this will be the time that they actually see the benefits of this development in ways that they haven't in the past, um, you know, I think that kind of rings hollow after we've seen, as I said, you know, centuries of us taking advantage of people in the global south for our own benefit up here in the global north. Um, and so I think that that's a serious problem. And it's something that the electric vehicle doesn't dismiss, but it allows the mining industry and the auto industry to greenwash themselves in really unproductive ways. So electric vehicle, certainly part of the solution. I think that there are certainly going to be places, particularly in rural areas where electric vehicles will be necessary because you know public transportation might never get to the place it needs to be to be completely reliant on those alternatives to the automobile. Um, but especially in cities and, and suburban areas, um, I think that there needs to be a much greater focus on transportation and alternatives to the car rather than just getting everyone to buy an electric car. Okay, let's end on, on where we started with Uber. Um, obviously, you've already said, you know, that Uber's, the world that Uber was born into and the kind of, um, I think it was 2009 that Uber was, was established. Uh, and, you know, emerging in the early 2010s with low interest rates, lots of cheap money circulating around. Uh, that world is kind of disappearing now. Uh, we've got an inflation crisis, um, which is affecting Uber in all sorts of ways, not just in terms of invest investment, but also um, prices, the price of fuel for drivers. So Uber's facing lots and lots of problems at the moment. Then you've got the Uber files on top of that. Where do you see Uber going now? If the 2010s was kind of the year of, of Uber and these new, you know, tech firms taking off, what, what is the 2020s going to look like? Yeah, it's a good question and, and an important question, right? When we think about the impact that Uber has had and what it might have going forward. I think during the pandemic, we started to get an idea of what 
the next stage of Uber is going to look like. And that is only, you know, continued moving in that direction as access to cheap money, as interest rates have have started to go up. And so, you know, I think what we're seeing is that the prices of Ubers are going up. The price of using the service is going up. Um, that's what's been reported in, you know, a lot of um, in the United States, in Canada. Uh, I've seen a lot of people in Europe saying the same yeah. thing um, to the degree that taxis are even more affordable for some trips now in a way that they weren't before because how 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 because of how heavily Uber was subsidized. Um, but then on top of that, I think that the service itself is also becoming less convenient because Uber is kind of running out of the supply of labor that is willing to exploit itself by going onto the platform, right? By willing to accept the, the terrible terms that Uber provides for these workers um, after you know more than a decade of operating this service. And so you're seeing on one hand, it's more expensive. On the other hand, it's less convenient than it used to be. Um, and so then how does Uber respond to that, right? What is its future? How does it see itself? How does it maintain the hold on transportation that it had in the past? One of the things I'm concerned about now is that Uber is making deals with taxi companies in cities like New York City, San Francisco, even in countries like Italy, in order to bring taxis onto the app, right? Mm -hmm. So before, you know, Uber was at war with the taxi companies and now bring it, bring them into the app. And I'm concerned that after decimating, um, you know, the, the rights and protections of the workers, after decimating the regulatory structure um, of the taxi companies, that Uber is basically going to try to now subject the taxi companies as a pool of labor as it starts to run out of, you know, people who are just willing to drive on Uber themselves, um, subject it to its own idea of, you know, what the rules for the taxi industry should be by further reducing, um, you know, the, the compensation for those workers, their rights, but at the same time, subjecting even taxi um, riders to surge pricing and the other sorts of things mm -hmm. that Uber has, you know, innovated, so to speak, through its model. Um, and so I don't think, you know, it's it's a positive future if Uber is able to attain these things. And it shows why the fight against Uber needs to continue to ensure that, you know, workers are recognized as employees or have the rights that they want, but also at the same time that, you know, we don't allow Uber to write the rules for how transportation should work in the city or how taxi services should work in the city. And that should be, you know, actually regulated by the governments in collaboration with workers and the other people who'd be affected by this.